we tend to read this section of scripture and then ask questions like, what constitutes the right observance of the Lord's Supper? Who should be included? Who should be excluded? Is it a sacrifice offering? Is it a memorial meal? Or is it a celebration of the resurrection? But as one New Testament writer puts it, the only question that Paul asks is this, does what is done proclaim the Lord's death or does it advertise my selfishness? It's supposed to be the Lord's Supper, but it was their supper because the Lord's dinner is intended to make everyone feel like they're special in the eyes of God. But instead, the Corinthian brunch shouted to half the group that they're worthless nobodies. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. We remember really good meals. You know, when God made the world, he made everything and he said it was very good. Have you ever thought about this? Food didn't have to taste this good, but it does. Except when it doesn't. We remember really good meals and we remember really bad meals. You remember when you went to make that new thing and it called for a pinch of salt and you put in the pound of salt. You remember the pie that you left in the oven to warm and didn't realize you would hit bake and well, it was burned to a crisp. You remember that one. We remember really good meals. We remember really bad meals. But most meals are neither of those. Do you know what most people had for dinner last night? Leftovers. From Greek house? No. From Walmart. From a can. You remember that thing we made in the crock pot on Thursday night? Everything that was left in the refrigerator that was half a can, we put it in there and then you eat it on Saturday night. It's an ordinary meal. Most meals are ordinary meals. Do you realize you eat over a thousand meals a year? And you don't even remember them. If I asked you what you ate last Tuesday, I bet you can't tell me. And yet those meals sustained you. Those meals literally gave you life and brought you to where you are today. It's funny, isn't it? How something ordinary like a meal can sustain you and give you life, and we don't even notice. Kind of reminds me of what we're going to talk about this morning. Think about something as simple as bread and juice. Growing up, I heard lots of sermons on the Lord's Supper. I remember having lots of questions. And the questions I remember my teachers asking, the questions I remember my preachers asking and answering, were the who, what, when, and where questions about the Lord's Supper. What does the Lord's Supper consist of? You already know the answer. Unleavened bread, I was told, and grape juice. Some used wine, but more sensible Christians used Welch's. When do we take the Lord's Supper? The day of the week is Sunday. How many Sundays? Every Sunday. We dabbled in the who question. Who is this for? Well, it's for baptized believers, I was told by my mom, gently as she slapped my hand as I was grabbing for the juice as a six-year-old pagan. And even we discussed the why in a limited sense. If someone had asked 
a young me, why are we taking the Lord's Supper? I would have answered quickly with a three-word answer. Because it's commanded. Those are not bad answers. In fact, they're good answers. They're good answers to my questions. But I'm always remembering, I've always been struck by this line from Tom Albright, who said, the Bible isn't written so much to answer my questions as it's written to question me. And I wonder what would happen if we opened our Bibles and we asked, what questions does the New Testament actually ask us about the Supper? You know, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul talks about the Lord's Supper in a sustained section, longer than any other section in the entire New Testament. If you're looking for something about the Lord's Supper, you get almost two chapters worth in Paul. He's very concerned about how they're doing it. They're doing it wrong. He wants them to do it right. We know they took it when they came together. And yet, in those two chapters, he says nothing about how frequently or when or where they meet. There's something else on his mind. Paul asked the Corinthians two questions about the supper. Two questions meant to challenge us. And so this morning, I've invited the Apostle Paul to ask those same two questions of us. The first question Paul asks is found in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. It reads like this. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? To put that in language for today, this is the body of Christ. Do you know that you are participants? You know, in the immediate context, there's a negative force to this. You probably already know this. In Corinth, Paul was dealing with a church that had come out of deep paganism. And so there were people who were mixing their old religion with the new. And this is a problem in the Old Testament as well. It's called syncretism. A little bit of Baal and a little bit of Yahweh. Cover all your bases. What was happening here is that they were having a feast to pagan gods, participating in worship to pagan gods on Saturday night. And after their pagan feast on Saturday night, they'd follow it with a Sunday morning table of the Lord. We don't have this problem anymore, do we? Maybe it's not even a, a Saturday night problem for, for his, his church or for churches anymore. Is it possible that even Sunday morning has become about something more than Jesus and him crucified? It's a holy event. It's a holy event. And living intentionally unholy 24-6 and then coming to church to get our holy elixir is not what Jesus had in mind. Now, we know that Jesus does that, right? He erases our sins. He removes our past. He takes our sins and he moves them as far as the east is from the west. He changes your life regardless of what you've done. But even in the first century, 
Some Christians took that amazing grace and they said things like this. Should we just keep on sinning so God can keep on giving more grace? And Paul said, what is wrong with you? Paul's question about participation leads him to offer this bold announcement. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Years ago, I heard Rick Ashley say, when, when something goes wrong in our country, we quickly blame Washington and Hollywood. And he said, why is it that we act surprised that sinners sin? Of course, sinners sin. It's what they do best. The problem isn't Hollywood. The problem isn't why do sinners sin. The problem is that the church can't wait until Saturday night to spend $20 to watch them do it. Do you know that you are participants in the body and blood of Christ? And since all of life in some sense is worship to God, and since all of life is in the presence of God, I invite him into everything I do. Is what I do here today consistent with how I feast with him every other day? That's the negative force. But you can't help but see the positive force here too, can't you? You know the gospel is packaged and repackaged in every passage of the Bible. When Luke writes his gospel, he makes sure you know that Jesus ate meals throughout his life and not just with certain people. He had meals with his followers when they were doubting. He had meals with his followers when they weren't doubting. He had meals with Pharisees. He had meals with tax collectors. And the Pharisees, after having a meal with Jesus, complained that he's now eating with prostitutes. Jesus loved to have meals with whoever would come to him. And it was some of his most important teaching happened around the table. And so when he was going to be betrayed, he met with his disciples for what's called the Last Supper. But it wasn't his last Supper, was it? There were a lot of lasts. I mean, when I think about last, uh, it was going to be his last breath this side of the cross. Yes, it was going to be the last supper in his first earthly body. But hardly anything else was a last, was it? It wasn't the last time Jesus was going to be betrayed. It wasn't the last time one of his followers would tuck tail and run. But it was the last time that Satan, who was called the accuser of the brethren all through the Bible, would ever have that label again. Because up until that moment, he could come into God's presence and lay an, accu an accusation around any one of our necks, keeping us from table fellowship with the Lord in that final day. But not anymore. When Christ died, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, which symbolized entrance is available. We can come feast with him on that final day. And to make that clear, when Jesus rose from the dead in Luke 24, Jesus meets a couple of curious followers who don't know what to think about what's just happened. And he talks with them and they invite him to supper. And there at the supper, he breaks the bread, blesses it 
and then he disappears, and they say to themselves, it's the Lord. And Luke doesn't finish the chapter without saying Jesus then meets with his apostles around, the, around a table. And you'd think he'd move on to something else, but he says, Jesus stops and says, has anybody got any food? And they give him broiled fish and he eats it in front of them. Luke wants you to know that Jesus is still enjoying table fellowship with his disciples in his glorified body. And just to make sure you didn't miss it, in Acts 10 and verse 41, this is the second volume of Luke's writing. In Acts 10.41, Paul talks about how great it is to be an apostle, how great it is to be a witness to the acts of Jesus. And he says, Christ didn't appear in resurrected form to everybody, but to us who ate and drank with him after his resurrection. Table fellowship, eating and drinking with Jesus was a stable part in the community of Christ, and it still is. And when Jesus said, I will not drink this cup again with you until I drink it in my Father's kingdom, and then Luke has has him drinking with his apostles after his resurrection, he's letting us in on something. That even though we wait for that final day, even though, as Paul says in his letters to Timothy, we await for his coming and his kingdom in its fullness, It's also true, Paul says, he's right to the Colossians, you have already been translated out of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And so when we eat and drink, as we sing in the song, we anticipate the feast for which we wait, but we also recognize that even now we eat and drink with the Lord. For we are living in the kingdom of God. You know, there's a mistranslation. There's a mistranslation near the end of 1 Corinthians 11, and I rarely pick on translations. They're all good. But every once in a while, there'll be a verse here or there that I wish was different. In some of the older versions, it will say, be careful about taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. Raise your hand if you're worthy. Not one of us is worthy. This is the whole point. In fact, in the parables, it's the one who thought he was worthy. That's not the good guy in the story. We all come to him unworthy, and he takes us as we are, and he makes us worthy because he sees us in his blood. But that mistranslation that I spoke of still means something. In the older versions that say unworthily, if you compare it with some of the newer versions, it will say in an unworthy manner or in a way that's not consistent with the meaning of the supper. You see, Paul does think that they're doing the Lord's Supper wrong. And the Corinthians figured out how to do it wrong. And that prompted Paul's second question. It's found in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 22. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? To put that in language for today, you have come to the table as the body of Christ. Do you know that others are invited here too? I learned this week about a a youth group activity 
called the long-handled spoon exercise. It goes like this. You take a broom handle and you tie a string at the end of it to a spoon. And you hand this out to everybody sitting around a table full of uh, bowls of oatmeal. And then you see how quickly, as in competition, they can eat all the food. And it's quite fun to watch. It doesn't always take them that long to figure out that trying to feed themselves is not the answer. The way you win is by feeding each other. And it reminded me of a great visual given by C.S. Lewis years ago. His portrait of hell is of a giant banquet table full of all the best foods you could possibly imagine, but all the people around it are skin and bones because the forks are two feet long and you have to feed the person across from you and nobody's willing to do it. Greco-Roman meals offered first-class and second-class seating. There was the dinner room, and that's where the nice guests came, and they reclined at table. But space was limited. And even though all those guests were reclining, second-class guests, they got stuck back in the atrium, and their people were forced to sit, not recline. You could tell who you were based on where you sat and who you sat with. To make matters worse, Corinth had just been through a severe famine. Can you imagine how that just made the problem worse when you have the haves who bring to the table the best stuff they've got and the have-nots who are withering on the vine as the haves gorge themselves and the have-nots don't eat what they don't have? You know, Paul could have fixed this by encouraging them to donate to a bunch of nonprofits, you know, set up a soup kitchen. But Paul wants to change the way they see the world through the eyes of the Lord and through the broken body and poured out blood of the lamb. It's the Lord's supper. He's the host. It's his body and blood that we're eating. And if it's going to be the Lord's supper, we've got to welcome all to the table whom the Lord our God is calling. We tend to read this section of scripture And then ask questions like, what constitutes the right observance of the Lord's Supper? Who should be included? Who should be excluded? Is it a sacrifice offering? Is it a memorial meal? Or is it a celebration of the resurrection? But as one New Testament writer puts it, the only question that Paul asks is this. Does what is done proclaim the Lord's death? Or does it advertise my selfishness? It's supposed to be the Lord's Supper, but it was their supper because the Lord's dinner is intended to make everyone feel like they're special in the eyes of God. But instead, the Corinthian brunch shouted to half the group that they're worthless nobodies. In the words of David Garland, it was tainted by the deadly combination of indulgence and indifference. And they learned it from their culture. I was amazed to find this quote from a first century Roman, not a Christian, describing a bad meal he just had. Listen to this quote. Since I am asked to dinner, no longer as before a purchased guest, why is not the same dinner served to me as to you? You take oysters fattened in the Lacrina Lake. I suck a muscle through a hole in the shell. You get mushrooms 
I take hog funguses. Golden with fat, a turtle dove gorges you with its bloated rump. There is set before me a magpie that has died in its cage. Why do I dine without you? Although, Ponticus, I am dining with you. I don't for one minute think that in our church today, given the same cup of juice, given the same piece of bread to every person who asks on a Sunday morning, despises or humiliates anyone. I'm glad we all get the same. But the question's still there. Is this the Lord's Supper or is this my supper? So I try to think what questions I might be asking myself. Do I harbor any thoughts of ill will towards another member of Christ's body? Am I overly concerned about what he's wearing or, or how he smells? Or did I choose where I sit because of how I feel about somebody else in the room? Did I clench my purse a bit tighter when he passed by me? Do I hope that she won't ask me to lunch? Do I really not want to be associated with them? By the second century, Christianity was taking a foothold in large cities like Corinth and Carthage over in North Africa. And rumors began to circulate about what this secret group of Christians do. They heard that they meet clandestinely at night under the cloak of darkness and they're cannibals. They, they eat flesh. They drink blood. I've heard them say it. And so a Christian named Tertullian wrote a little book to try to explain the rumors and explain why in the midst of those rumors, it keeps growing. And here's what he said he overheard when people talked about Christians. It's mainly the deeds of a love so noble that leads many to put a brand on us. They say things like, see how they love one another. See how they're ready even to die for each other. So what are the tasks that Paul gives us to ensure that we're asking the right questions? There's two. First, examine yourselves. It was before the supper in Mark's gospel that Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And then one by one, they responded, surely it's not I, is it? As if to say, that's horrible, but not my fault. They seem more concerned with their innocence than Jesus' fate or the terrible fate that's about to befall the betrayer among them. It seems to me that self-examination requires focusing on more than just myself. And then second, we're told to discern the body. I love the shape of the cross that's formed by noting the first two commandments. Have you ever seen this before? That the first commandment is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there is the vertical relationship. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. But in between the two, it says the second is like the first. They connect. They attach. How you treat your neighbor is how you treat God. And it forms the cross. And so it is with this line, discern the body. Did you notice that Paul in, second, in 1 Corinthians 11 never talks about the cup again when he's trying to make his point? He just sticks with the body. He mentions the bread and he says, like the bread is one loaf, we are one 
body. One way that we discern the body is by looking around. It's easy to spend the supper sitting alone, thinking alone, discerning alone. And that's not wrong. As long as it's an opportunity to ask if my life is being lived alone. Discerning the body is not just about the piece of bread on the table. It's about the assembled bodies at the table. That's the horizontal line. But there's also a vertical line. When we discern the body, we discern Jesus. We remember that this is the Lord's Supper in every sense. He's the host and he's also the main course. But these two are related as we discern Jesus. It changes how we treat everyone around us. Paul is in prison in Philippi when he writes the letter to the Philippians. And he says, I want you to think like Jesus. I want you to have the mind of Jesus. And when he says, think on and think about and think through Jesus, what's it going to look like? Well, that's chapter two. Chapter four is tell the two older ladies on the back row to get along. Thinking on, thinking like, thinking through Jesus changes the way we think about each other. Do I want this? Do I want all of God's people at the table? Do I want to share my bread with those who need it most? Do I want to bring my life into the hands of Jesus and to bring the life of Jesus into every area of my life? Do I want the holy meal to tell the holy story? In every step I take, if so, come to the table. He's invited you. When a host shared a meal, it was a social move. It announced which caste you belong to. It announced who you want to be associated with. And Christ said, when you host a meal, don't invite the well-to-dos. Invite the outcast. Invite the poor, invite the blind. And wouldn't you know it, when the early church gathered to break bread, do you know who made up the early church? Paul said, not many of you are called uh, called to be noble in this world, but all of you have been called to the table. We are the body. We show that we're the body when we gather as the body to partake of the body. This morning, if you're not in Christ, we can change that. We can take you as you are, but we will not leave you that way. The Spirit never leaves you that way. We'll put you under the water. When we lift you up, you will be a new creature made new in Christ, full of the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And then together, holding hands together as one body, we'll partake of that one body and we'll remember the blood of Jesus that forgives our sins, flows through our veins. And the body that was on the cross that he gave for you is now being given to you by a brother and sister through whom you can see and meet Christ. And how do you know that you meet Christ in the body? See how we love one another. Well, I'm thoroughly enjoying this series on community. I hope you are too. Thanks for tuning in. God bless you. Thanks for joining No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.